We're going to be continuing our study this morning. John 6, and we're on the, uh, this, this fourth large discourse in the Gospel of John. Um, so remember, we've said several times, um, about, talked about the signs in the Gospel of John. Um, we just saw the fourth messianic sign Jesus does in John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And um, just by way of review, we've said that the signs in, in John are supposed to do a couple things. The signs, we've seen uh, four of them. The first is changing water into wine, healing the official son, uh, raising the man, healing him, laying 38 years, and then feeding um, 5,000 men, 20,000 plus people. The signs are meant to do a few things. They're, they're, they're meant to call you to pay attention, to hear, and to press into the words of Christ. They're not ends in themselves. They're meant to alert you um, to the fact that you're dealing with no mere man, and then to pay attention to his words. The signs of John are also meant to give a symbolic portrayal of the eternal life that Jesus has come to provide, and how he would come to provide it. They were meant to declare that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and they were meant to illustrate what Messiah has come to accomplish and what he's come to provide. And that's exactly what happens in the feeding of the 5,000. We saw it two weeks ago. And at the conclusion of the miracle, we remember in verses 14 to 15, the crowd concludes that Jesus is what? What do you remember? He is the what? The prophet who's coming to the world. The, the one promised in Deuteronomy 18 who would be like Moses. It's around Passover time. They're in the wilderness. Jesus feeds a multitude of this miracle bread. And they conclude this is one that's very much like Moses. So they come and they're ready to make him king. Force Jesus to be their revolutionary leader to deliver them, not from Egypt, but from Roman oppression. But Jesus responds to this in verse 15 by immediately retreating into the mountain country, the hill country by himself. He had not come to be that kind of king. Um, he is the new Moses. He's like Moses. He is the prophet, but he's not come to be that kind of king. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this discourse, um, the fourth large discourse in John. And what happens, Jesus gives a sign in John and often follows it with an explanation of the meaning of the sign. So he does this miracle in, in John 6, 1 through 15, and now he's going to explain to them where they got it wrong and how they should be responding to him. Um, he is indeed prophet. He is indeed one like Moses, but he is much, much greater. But before he gives us this discourse, what we saw last week is this short little scene in verses 16 through 21, where Jesus walks on water. And he reveals himself in a unique way to his disciples. The crowd had failed to respond to him rightly, and he doesn't give more revelation to them, but he does come to his disciples and reveal 
something extraordinary about himself. Um, the disciples don't get it fully. They're not going to get it fully until after the resurrection. But they're growing. They're not in the same category as the crowd. And so Jesus comes walking on the water, and we said what that demonstrates is that he is indeed one like Moses, but he is much greater than Moses, just as much greater as Yahweh God himself is greater than Moses. Jesus is presenting himself here not as Moses who delivered Israel from Egypt, but as the God who led Israel out of Egypt. He walks on water, something that only Yahweh God does. He has dominion over the seas. And so the redemption he's come to provide is also going to be greater than anything Moses provided. So that's what he reveals to his disciples. And now we come this morning to our text. Uh, verses 22 through 71. It's a very long discourse where he engages this crowd. Uh, we title it God's Gift of True Bread, Flesh of the Son of God for the Eternal Life of Chosen Disciples, John 6, 22 through 71. So last week he declared to his disciples that he is greater than Moses because he is God incarnate. And now he is declaring to the crowd that he is greater than Moses because he's not come to be a bread giver, he's come to be bread. He's come not to give something in addition to himself, he has come to give himself. Craig Keener said it like this, the crowd wants an earthly deliverer like Moses to supply food and bring political freedom. Jesus seeks to turn their attention from physical food that they seek to the spiritual food that he is. Thus, he is not merely, like Moses, the mediator of God's gift. Rather, he himself is God's gift. That is how you would summarize this entire discourse. This morning, we're only going to look at the first section, verses 22 to 34, in which Jesus exposes those who come to him wrongly. Jesus exposes those who come to him wrongly. Have you ever considered how significant one's motivation is for coming to Jesus? It not only matters that you believe in Jesus, it matters why you believe in Jesus. And why you believe in Jesus is rooted in what you understand about Jesus, who Jesus is, his identity. It's so important for us because so much of the false teaching out there presents to us a Jesus other than the Jesus of the Bible and motivates people to pursue this Jesus for all the wrong reasons. A Jesus who gives health, wealth, and prosperity. A Jesus who liberates people from oppression. A therapeutic Jesus who makes people feel good about themselves. A self-help guru. This passage will declare to us that your motivation for coming to Christ really matters. And your motivation for coming to Jesus will center on your understanding of who Jesus is. Or to put it another way, false disciples come to a Jesus created in their own imagination for their own desired ends. And that is what this crowd is doing this morning. They've made a Christ that they want for their own desired ends. Look at verses 22 through 27. 
Jesus confronts the crowd's misdirected enthusiasm. This scene begins early the next morning back on the eastern shore of Galilee near the Golan Heights where he performed this miracle. We showed you a map of that last week. In the morning, the crowd is still there. Jesus had retreated into the mountains. They don't know where he is. Um, probably camped there overnight, wake up in the morning, and they are eagerly searching for Jesus. As far as they know, Jesus is still somewhere in the region. They have no idea that he's just crossed the sea the night before. And they want to find him. Still want to make him king, but they're ready for breakfast. They're ready for another miracle meal. And they can't find him anywhere, and so they are perplexed. Look at verse 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained there on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. This verse tells us that there had only been one boat there, the boat that he had come across with his disciples. The disciples took that with them when they left, and Jesus wasn't with them. So the point is that Jesus could not have just slipped across the sea in some other boat. He has to be in this region, they conclude. There's no way he could have gotten there. If he had gone by land, they certainly would have seen him that way as well. But while they're standing there on the shore confused, not knowing where Jesus is at, other boats arrive. Look at verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near. The crowd um, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Tiberias was a rather large town on the western shore of Galilee, named after Tiberius Caesar. And boats start to come from there over to the, the eastern side. And we're not told why. Perhaps these are fishing boats. Perhaps they're neighbors and friends that want to come and join the crowd. But either way, they're coming over. And once the crowd realizes that Jesus is nowhere to be found, they embark on these boats and cross the sea to Capernaum. Look at verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They uh, go to Capernaum. They know the disciples are heading there. Um, they figure if they can track the disciples down, eventually they will find Jesus. And in verse 25, they track him down. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So much to their astonishment, Jesus is already on the other side of the sea. He's in Capernaum. They don't know how he got there. And they naturally ask him about it. They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Notice they call him Rabbi. It's exactly what Nicodemus called Jesus after Nicodemus saw signs. Rabbi was what you called a respected teacher of the Old Testament. And they're zealously seeking Jesus because of his signs, and they call him teacher. Now, this is really ironic. Nicodemus did this. Nicodemus did the same thing. They, they call him rabbi, they see his signs, and then they're about to stiff-arm him in his teaching that he's about to give. D.A. Carson said it like this. They acknowledge him as teacher, though they are about to dispute his teaching. They clamor for him as king, though they understand little of the nature of his reign. 
And it's important to note here just how many um, at that time and still today are ready to sign up for Christ who know little about him or what he teaches or what he demands. They assume that Christ will simply fit into the mold of their expectations of what Messiah ought to do. They don't even question the possibility that what he has to say would confront their desires and their spiritual condition. The implication is that we must be on guard against our hearts lest we should try to press Christ in the kind of Christ we want him to be rather than the Christ he's come to declare himself to be. Those who come to Christ rightly receive him for what he says he is and for what he declares to be true. And the great irony is that these people conclude correctly that he is a teacher, he has come from God, and yet they fail to listen to him. They fail to receive him in his, his words. The problem was that they forgot this as soon as his words conflicted with their expectations and their desires. So they're zealously seeking him. They have these preconceived desires for him. They call him rabbi, and they're about to be offended by him. Look at verse 26. Jesus now reveals their wrong motivations for coming to him. Perhaps one would think that Jesus would respond by answering their question. Remember, they said, Jesus, when did you come here? Rabbi, when did you come here? But he doesn't. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't say, well, I crossed the water last night. I walked on sea, revealing myself as Yahweh God incarnate. Why doesn't he tell them that? because that's not what they need. They've already failed to respond rightly to his signs. They're just going to misuse more revelation that he gives to them. Instead, he goes right to the heart of what they desperately need. They don't need more signs. They don't need more revelation. They need to be confronted at their true heart condition. Again, this is very similar to something he does with Nicodemus. Remember in John 3.3, 3, Nicodemus comes, says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. And how does Jesus answer him? Unless you are born again. He doesn't even engage him. He just goes right to the heart of his name. Unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom. That's exactly what comes here. Rabbi, when did you come here? Look at verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus exposes just what is driving these people. What is at the heart of their pursuit? He goes right at their motivations. Why are they seeking him? He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs. Now, what does that mean? Didn't they see the sign? Look back in chapter uh, 6, verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign. Look back in verse 2. Large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. So what does Jesus mean here? You're seeking me not because you saw signs. Well, I thought they saw it, right? And this is where John's and uh, Jesus' meaning of signs is very important in this gospel. It's not merely that they saw the external manifestation of a sign, but they missed the entire purpose of what a sign is. They missed the meaning of of the sign. They saw this miraculous work, but the signs were meant to point to Jesus as Messiah and what he would provide. It's not just their miraculous nature, but it's the, the context and all the details that Jesus wrapped up in it that were meant to communicate about himself. 
Jesus is saying that had you really seen the signs, you would be coming to learn from me and receive me. But instead, you're consumed with this life and you missed it. You didn't really get what the signs were communicating. Instead, you're coming to me for the wrong reasons. Look at the rest of the verse. You're coming to me not because you really understood signs as they're pointing away from themselves to me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Their true motivation in seeking Jesus is the gratification of their fleshly appetites. They're not coming to him that they might know his teaching, that they might get an explanation for the sign, that they could understand more of his kingship, that they would know what he's teaching about them and himself. They reveal that they are concerned primarily with physical satisfaction. Rather than being moved from the sign to the sign worker, they move from the sign to a desire for more signs. And for unregenerate people, the only thing that matters is this life. Their personal comfort. What they really love is the preservation of their earthly lives. Christ is nothing more than a means to that end. It's a primary quality of unbelievers. The essence of life for them is not knowing the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit, what John 17, 3 says is eternal life, but having a full stomach and enjoyable existence. Now, the Puritans would call this the problem of earthly-mindedness. And it's our default setting. And as we're going to see in John 6, it makes coming to Christ absolutely impossible. This is how the natural person thinks. It's this life, this world so it's all consuming, and it blinds the eyes to Christ. And you cannot come to Christ unless something happens to you, which is what the rest of John 6 will tell us. But that this is what characterizes unbelievers. Look with me over at Philippians chapter 3 really quickly. Hold your hand here. verse 18. Paul says, For many of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. And they set their minds on earthly things. That is this crowd right here. And that is the default setting of unbelievers. So they come to Jesus. They're seeking him earnestly, not because they got signs or they had any interest in knowing Christ, but because they had a full stomach and they want more earthly mindedness. We're going to verse 27 now. Jesus redirects the people to the proper motivation for coming to him. So that's the wrong motivation. What is the correct one? Verse 27, Jesus says, Labor not for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. These people are laboring in their seeking of Jesus. That's what Jesus means. They're seeking him with all their might so that they can get a full stomach. And Jesus says, Stop laboring like that for physical food. Rather, this is what you should be laboring and you're seeking for. 
Jesus calls it food that perishes. It's probably an allusion to the manna in the Exodus. What happened the second day um, if you kept the manna overnight? Spoiled, red worms, it perished. Jesus said, stop laboring for food that perishes. It doesn't endure. But it probably also means not only the food doesn't endure, but itself is unable to sustain life beyond the grave. Those who only have this food, they likewise will perish with it. Those who eat this physical food will still die. Stop laboring for that. Stop making that the main focus of your life. Again, highlights how futile the pursuits of unregenerate people are. It's short-sighted. It's empty. It's worthless. That's what life is all about for them. It's for food that will perish and that's unable to save people from perishing. Instead, Jesus tells them to laboriously seek something else. Look what he says. But labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus offers food that not only endures to eternal life, but will able to make you endure to eternal life as well. The food which Christ offers is able to sustain and give true spiritual life. We've talked about this before. What is eternal life in John? It's not only life that never ends, although obviously includes that. It's a kind of life. It's the life of the new creation, the life of the age to come, invading this present life, a life that's characterized by fellowship with the triune God, a life that is characterized by the total forgiveness of sin, a life that's characterized by the transformation of the Holy Spirit in your hearts. Jesus says, be primarily concerned about that labor to get that from me. And the point is that the only proper motivation to come into Christ is to come to receive this, nothing else. But it's not only that um, one comes to receive what Christ offers, it comes with a full assurance of Christ's authority to give this. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, which the Son of Man will give to you, for the Father, even God, has sealed him. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man repeatedly in this gospel. It's a reference back to the Messianic figure in Daniel 7. Pastor Farrell, I think this morning, is probably going to uh, preach that very text. Jesus probably uses this term instead of Messiah because it's not so loaded with all the political connotations at that time. He calls himself the promised son of man who would accomplish the Father's purposes. And in John, almost every occurrence of this title, son of man, has to do with what he's going to provide. He's going to provide access to the Father through his cross work, through his coming cross. The Son of Man will give eternal life through his cross. So you come to Christ rightly if you come to receive the eternal life he's accomplished and provided through his cross and with full confidence on his authority to give it. Jesus says that the Father has sealed him. That is, he's placed his stamp of approval on Christ. He's been authenticated. So think back to John 5, where we just saw um, the witnesses the Father bore to the Son. Remember that? All the different ways the Father has testified concerning his Son. I think that's what this is referring to, especially the signs. 
And the Father has testified that this is his representative, his Son, who would provide the eternal life. So you come to Christ rightly to receive eternal life that he offers and with full assurance of Christ's authority to give it. So that is how Jesus confronts the misdirected enthusiasm of the crowd. But now, in verses 28 through 33, he's going to confront the crowd's unbelief. Their preoccupation with earthly things not only causes them to pursue Jesus wrongly, it also causes them to totally misunderstand him. The very fact that they are so oblivious to the glorious realities he's telling them evidences their blind spiritual condition. So you see this over and over in John. Nicodemus comes to Christ. Christ declares to him this truth of being born again. And how does Nicodemus respond? How can I enter again into my mother's womb? He's so earthly minded, right? Woman at the well. I offer you true living water. You greater than our father Jacob? Where are you going to get that living water? So tied to this earth. Again, these people do the same thing. They totally miss the spiritual realities that Jesus is talking about. And that is what Jesus is going to go after, their unbelief. That works itself in two ways, this unbelief. The first is misunderstanding what Jesus meant by working or laboring. Jesus was speaking about laboring and seeking, right? So don't labor by seeking me in this way. But they hear him to be saying that you need a labor to do some work to which I'm going to respond with some more miracle bread. Look at verse 28. It says, They said to him, What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? In essence, they say, You just said we need to be working for this food, so what work do we need to get it? They're misunderstanding what he is saying. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? The works of God here means the works which God requires. They completely misunderstood what Jesus said back in verse 27. He said, which the Son of Man will give you. This word give and gift is all through this chapter. What Christ has come to provide is a gift. that is to be received by faith. But all the crowd can think of is some work that they can do. They assume they have the ability to meet any challenge that God brings to them. They're not only confused about what Jesus has come to offer, they're confused about how to get it. And they're ready to work for it. What work should we do? So in verses 28 through 29, Jesus corrects their reliance on works. The food Christ offers is given to those who believe. If any will come to Christ and get what he offers, it will not be by performing any work he demands, but by believing and receiving it as a gift through faith alone. Look at verse 29. The crowd is ready to work. Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is the work God requires. That you believe in him whom he has sent. The only thing that God requires of you to receive the life that we just talked about is genuine faith alone in Christ alone. The crowd was quite confident in meeting any criteria that Jesus gave to them. But it's contrasted here with someone who knows they have no ability in themselves 
to meeting any of God's demands and instead look outside themselves to Christ alone. Look back to chapter 3. We've gone through this verse over and over. Such a beautiful picture of the faith Jesus is talking about here. This is the work of God that you believe. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember that story? The people were without hope, dying in desperate need for physical life. Moses lifts up a metal snake, and all who looks to it are healed, right? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in him with the same kind of expectation and dependency that people had on the metal snake for physical life, whoever believes in Christ with that same kind of hopeless dependency in him may have eternal life. It's exactly what he is telling the crowd here. This faith looks to Christ with desperate dependency. It also looks to him in confidence, full assurance. Look at the rest of the verse. That you believe in him whom he has sent. It receives Jesus. Not only looks away from self and relies on him, but receives him for who he is as one sent from the Father. And all that um, Jesus declared back in chapter 5, what that means. So just note, this is good news for sinners who've come to know their true condition. These people here are blind to their true condition. And so Jesus, what he offers doesn't matter that much to them. But those who know their desperate need, their inability to perform any work that God would demand of them, here this is good news. And they run to Christ in faith alone to receive what he offers. But for the rest, it is a stumbling block. Look at verse 30 through 33. He corrects their earthly mindedness. The food Christ offers is himself. Verses 28 through 29, he corrected their desire to work for the gift. And now he will correct their continued misunderstanding of what this gift is. The crowd hears Jesus tell them to believe in him. And astonishingly, they respond by demanding another physical sign. Look at verse 30. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That's absolute astonishing uh, unbelief. They demand another physical sign for physical manna. They just saw the feeding of the 5,000, and now they're asking for another sign. You're probably wondering with me, well, didn't they just see it? Like, how could they be so blind? Could they be so hard-hearted? That's the point. They say, okay, if you want us to believe in you, then we need another sign. It's astonishing ignorance and forgetfulness of what Jesus has just done. For them, it wasn't enough. They're saying the feeding of the 5,000 was a great start. But if you want us to respond to you in faith and what you are claiming, then you need to miraculously fill our bellies again and do something even more miraculous than Moses. Just to get sort of the setting of what's going on here in your minds, 
Verse 59 tells us that all of this is going on in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus is sitting there. He's teaching them. They're responding to his teaching, questioning him, demanding these signs. And in verse 31, they imply the kind of sign that they want. Look at verse 31. They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they probably conclude from verse 27 where Jesus talks about the bread that endures to eternal life. And he's promising some kind of bread better than the bread Moses gave, which spoiled the next day. Again, they're, they're still thinking earthly thoughts. And so they're ready for him to shower this new, better bread on them. Again, D.A. Carson put it this way. Did I just have that up there? There it is. If Jesus is superior to Moses, as his tone and claims suggest, then should not his followers be privileged to witness mightier works than those seen by the disciples of Moses? This Old Testament quotation they give in verse 31, he gave them bread from heaven to eat, was a compilation of texts from the Old Testament. It expressed the expectation that Messiah, when he comes, would shower down new manna, as a new Moses on God's people. It comes from Exodus 16, 14, Psalm 78, Psalm 105. You can look those up in your time. This is what the crowd expects. This is their request. And with this, the synagogue crowd must have been sitting on the edge of their seats, ready now, okay? We're ready. He's going he's gonna to do it. He's going to shower down this miracle bread on us. But look where Jesus goes in the rest of the passage. He doesn't give them what they want. Actually, in the rest of the passage, till verse 71, he's going to unpack this Old Testament quotation. There are four key words in here. There's the word bread, from heaven, give, and eat. And those words are going to come up over and over again to the end of the passage. He's going to tell them that the text is true. The expectation is correct, but they have misunderstood it and misapplied it. And that is where he goes next in verse 32. He gives a clarification about the source of true manna. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Why does Jesus say it like this? Didn't the Jews know that it was God the Father that supplied the bread ultimately? They obviously did. They knew their Old Testaments. He says it because up to this point, God the Father hasn't even been on their thoughts. It's been Moses. And it's been a new Moses. It's the only one they've been concerned about. It's been the centerpiece of their thoughts. They forgot about God the Father who stood behind everything that Moses did and accomplished. What they're most concerned about is not finding out what God is doing, but finding the new Moses for their physical appetites. Look what it says again. Jesus says, my father gives to you. That is in the present tense in, in Greek. The idea is it's ongoing. He is currently in the process of giving to you the true bread from heaven. What does this mean, true bread? We've seen this several times in John. True, the idea is not true versus false. The manna wasn't false, right? It was real bread. We see true in John, so that Jesus is the true light. 
He's come to make true worshipers. He is the true vine. The idea isn't true versus false. The idea is true as opposed to that which is insufficient in itself. That which is but, but a shadow of a greater thing that is to come. Jesus is the true bread in the sense that he is the ultimate expression of the Father's life-giving provision for his people. It is the reality which replaces the shadows of all the manna in the Old Testament. But just like in the Gospel of John up to this point, the Jews are content with their shadows. They like their rituals. They like their temple. They like the miracles. They forget that all of it points to Christ. But what exactly is this true bread? Look at verse 33. Jesus identifies it. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Bread which God now gives is Jesus. Jesus is not an instrument to give something besides himself. Jesus has come from God to give us himself. It's God's gift. He's like the first manna, but he's better because he too comes from God. And he's like the first manna, but he's better because he too gives life, but it's spiritual life and eternal life, something the first could never do. And then notice the last phrase. He gives his life to who? To the world, not to Jews only. The world in John represents the rebellious system against God, but it also represents the, the breaking of ethnic boundaries. It's not just Jews. It is now bigger and better than anything the first manna was is for the world Samaritans and Gentiles like you God's gift is not bread it's his son it's not physical life it's eternal life it's not for Jews only it is for the salvation of the world well look at verse 34 the Jews again misunderstand him They said, sir, give us this bread always. It's still going over their heads. They're still thinking with earthly mindedness. They say, sir, give us this bread always. They hear verse 33 in a way that, that's grammatically possible. Verse 33 says, the bread of God is the thing or the one that comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. So they hear it and interpret it as the bread which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Even though it's crystal clear from what Jesus is saying that it refers to himself. It's just over and over again, and it's going to continue. And they miss it. It's going over their heads. But next week, Jesus is going to make it explicit. And then their real hearts are going to be exposed. He'll tell them, I am the bread of life. So I have a few closing implications um, just to give to you as you go away from this passage. But before I do that, any questions, any comments about the passage? You know, Mike, you mentioned yeah. about uh, motives. Uh, <clears throat> I look back at, at my testimony. And next year, it'll be 50 years I came to Christ uh, as a young, lost college student. But I, I look back and, and Many of my motives in my fallen nature were not good motives in some respects. And sure. as, as I began to grow 
Yeah. I began to see, so I didn't have that initial. So you know. sure. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> what we're saying is not that faith begins fully mature. It begins in seed form often. It's often a mixed baggage. But there is true faith and there is a true understanding of who Christ is and what he's come to accomplish. And the fact that it grows, the more it's confronted with truth, it doesn't run and bolt like this crowd's going to do, like Nicodemus does. Evidence is it's real faith, right? It evidences that it's persevering. So it's good. Amen. What else? Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah. Um, I've studied this passage many times before and have read a lot about Christ saying like, the work of God is to believe. And uh, last time you talked about uh, people pleasing, like, that was really helpful. Um, I think I think it'd be really cool to learn more, like maybe at some point, or maybe if you could discuss more about like what are the works that accompany faith sure. and or like I, I'm studying faith and repentance now like, and reevaluating my life a little bit well, a lot but like certain theologians will describe faith as like sitting in a chair like Piper Sproul Piper says like it's sitting in a chair and then Sproul says you also have to love the chair and then like um, Tim Conway and Paul Washer talk about faith is not like sitting in a chair because in some places Christ says or like in some places, the call of the gospel says to repent, and in other places, the call of the gospel is to believe. So, like, believing and repenting are like, inseparable. Yeah. And after reading a lot, it, yeah. there's a lot of things to read about it. There is. So, like, the, I think the more reading, or at least myself, kind of confuses it. That's what I yeah. That's good. Yeah, there's a, it's a big topic. Um, it depends on which passage you're in. Some passages, this one here in John, John 3 even, um, comes to people um, demanding that they know their desperate condition to where faith is what? It's a looking outside of yourself and a dependence on Christ who succeeded where I failed, who provided everything that I need for the wrath that I deserve. It's a dependency, a, a, a leaning, a resting, a trusting in something outside of myself. Other passages emphasize the flip side of faith, which looks like what? Which looks like I recognize Christ not only as Savior, but as Lord. And I recognize my life as one of rebellion towards him. And it's the same turning. It's the turning to Christ in dependence and trust is the turning away from sin. You can't do both. You can't trust him to atone for my sin while I'm still loving and clinging to my sin. Right? Does that make sense? Um, it's a big topic. John 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh, we'll unpack discipleship and what faith looks like. It works. It bears fruit. And, uh, only the faith that bears fruit is uh, is real faith that Jesus tells us. So, uh, it's good. It's a good question. Yeah, that'll be exciting. The hit John fifteen yeah. fourteen talks about if you love me, you will obey. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, Bob. Like I just became really clear as we go through this, but especially today. That, you know, unbelievers are, are God haters. Yeah. There's no there's no in between. You know, we see they're either serving themselves and, and hating Christ, or their God has changed, done a work in their heart to love Christ. I just I, I see that that's really evident here. Um, yeah. That they don't love Him 
And you will never really grasp conversion and what has to take place for conversion to happen until you grasp your true condition. And it's right here over and over and over again. They are so attached to this earth. It's impossible for them to come to faith unless the rest of chapter 6 takes place in their life. Unless the father drags them to the son in his mercy and gives them life. So, it's good. Let me give you a couple closing thoughts. Number one, what is your motivation in coming to Christ? Is he just a means to an end for you? Or have you received him knowing your desperate spiritual condition apart from him in his cross work? Have you come to, a, to Jesus as a hungry person comes to bread? Or is he just a stepping stone to something else for you? Or is he your very life? Number two. Be exhorted in this passage in your evangelism to be very clear, not only on the content of the gospel, but on the motivation of your hearers. Why are they interested in Christ? What are they seeking to find Christ for? Do they know the Jesus of the Bible, or is it the Jesus of their own imagination? And are they coming to him for what he really offers, which is eternal life, fellowship with God, forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of himself? Number three, be on guard in your life against earthly mindedness. You, like the disciples, are not in the same category as this crowd, and yet it still clings to us. Temptation to be in love with this world and all our thoughts, this life. It will hinder your walk as believers. It will cause you to know little of Christ and his glories. It will cause your fruit to be small and sour. It will cause you to neglect Christ as the satisfaction of your life. Be on guard against earthly mindedness. Look for those evidences and press into Christ's words as the remedy to it. So that is John 6, 22 through 34. Next week we will go on to uh, what I think is one of the most glorious passages on uh, God's work in, in our lives to bring us to Christ. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the life that he offers. Thank you for awakening us that we would not be enslaved to our lives, but we would see him as he truly is. All of his glory. We would love him, delight in him, receive him as our Savior and as our Lord. Father, I ask that you continue to grow us, mature us, guard us from earthly-mindedness. Father, I ask that you prepare us for the service to come. And I ask that you bless the time of fellowship this afternoon. We love you very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.